welcome to Interlude, Women's Cancer Stories with Dr. Toplinski. I am a medical oncologist and I specialize in treating women with breast and gynecologic cancers. I started this podcast to share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. The information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as any medical advice as each woman has a different treatment and experience. It is meant to create a dialogue. Any personal medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Cancer brings normal life to a halt. It creates an interlude. Let's talk about it. Today, my guest is Dr. Jennifer Driscoll. Jennifer was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 39 years old. She had actually left medicine six months prior to her diagnosis to spend more time with her young children. She was taking her daughter out to lunch to celebrate the first day of kindergarten when she got the call telling her she had breast cancer and life changed forever. She is a writer and she talks about how writing during chemotherapy was an outlet for her, how to talk to your children about the fact that their mom has breast cancer, and how it is so important to have support during this journey. Welcome, Jennifer. I'm so excited to have you on today. Can you start by briefly introducing yourself? My name is Jennifer Driscoll. I am a uh, MedPeds trained physician and um, a romance author, a mom, uh, and a breast cancer patient. So I really want to hear about the romance writing in a little bit, because uh, that's fascinating. But can you start by talking about your breast cancer diagnosis, how old you were when you were diagnosed, how you found out, and so forth? Sure. My uh, story starts when I was 39, back in August of 2016. I found my own tumor in my left breast, uh, just on a routine self-exam, in fact, I looked in the mirror and could see it. Um, I thought I had a cyst because I had no reason to think, or had no reason to think any other. And um, I went to my gynecologist who ordered an ultrasound. It was relatively painful. It was a large tumor and it did hurt. So we tried to do ultrasound first, but that quickly converted to a mammogram when they did the ultrasound in the radiology suite. And... After mammogram, my radiologist said it was probably a cancer. Um, I asked him straight out because I'm a fellow physician and I wanted his opinion. Then I waited a very long time for biopsies. So <laughs> I wish I could say that, um, you know, they took me right back and, and took care of things. But um, I waited nine days before they could get me into the radiology suite to do my biopsy. Then... Um, I waited five more days for the pathology result because it was over the Labor Day weekend and um, things are delayed on the holidays. So um, it was actually my daughter's first day of kindergarten and um, I got my phone call that I had um, IDC um, and it was ERPR positive and HER2 negative. When I had my MRI, it turned out my tumor was seven centimeters, and I eventually found out it involved three of ten lymph nodes. Um, then I started treatment. Um, I got my port placed the day after I turned 40 and started uh, chemotherapy immediately. So I um, am a physician in town. I've been a, a med student in town for two years. Then I was a resident here in this small community for four years. 
And I knew all of the surgeons and all of the oncologists, although the oncologist I um, absolutely wanted, I didn't think was taking new patients in our town. She actually was, had moved uh, to a different town and um, she ended up calling me directly and saying, you know, get yourself over here. We're going to do this. She's one of those oncologists who, um, when you're the med student, you don't want to be on rounds with her because she knows everything and um, is quite intimidating. But when she's your oncologist, she's the best advocate for you in the world. And so I wanted her. Um, and so I, I did uh, travel a little bit for treatment. Um, and I saw uh, my favorite surgeon in town. And then we just started treatment. We started uh, AC, um, adromycin, cytoxin. And I did four rounds of that. And then I did 10 or 12 rounds of Taxol um, before I did a bilateral mastectomy. So for those who don't know, IDC stands for invasive ductal carcinoma. It means the cancer started in the duct. Uh, and let's back up a little bit to that sure. nine days where you're waiting for the results. What's going through your mind? Or nine well, days where you're waiting for the biopsy and then the five yes. days for the results? I mean, I had talked to the physician in the radiology suite. I had every reason to believe I had cancer. Uh, so it was um, devastatingly long to wait. Um, I didn't feel like I could push the envelope when uh, maybe I should have. Maybe I should have asked for uh you know, them to push me in sooner. Um, I would never have expected my patients to wait that long. So understanding what I had was very disappointing from the time I knew what I had until treatment was done. Everything was smooth as could be. And the idea that um, I was a young woman with an aggressive cancer got the ball rolling. Um, I think they didn't expect me to have this. I have uh, BRCA2. But I didn't know that, and no one in my family has ever had a cancer. Um, and I now know that um, it travels through my mom's genes, and uh, she certainly has never had a cancer. And uh, so I think it was just unexpected, uh, despite the findings on the mammogram. Uh, nobody, certainly in my family, thought it would be so, but I, I knew in those nine days I was waiting um, I, I knew, and my husband's a physician. He was very supportive and obviously um, inside track on what was going to be treatment and uh, the course of things. So I think he understood it, but a lot of my family didn't, having no history of cancer and why they would make me wait that long. Um, I'm not mad about it. I'm not bitter about it. I just, it was a disappointing time to wait that long to, to get in and get an answer. And then, you know, you're dropping off your daughter. At kindergarten. It was a half day of school. I have an older son as well who's already in school, but it, for, for her, it was her first day of kindergarten. It was a half day. We decided we would take, uh, a friend and I would take her and uh, my friend's daughter, who, you know, the two of them are just best friends. We would take them out to breakfast after they got out of their early day and celebrate the start of kindergarten. And we sat together in the restaurant, uh, which I've never been back to since because I got my phone call there. Um, and and she knew immediately when I walked back in the door uh, from taking my call that it was bad. And um, fortunately, she is a great friend and um, understands and knows the uh, diagnosis of breast cancer. And her mother passed away 
uh, from the same. And so she just hugged me and, um, you know, gave me good support and sent me home. But it was not a, a day I want to remember the way I thought the day would start taking my daughter to kindergarten for the first day. You know, life goes on despite, and especially for yeah. kids, right? Their life goes, their life has to go on every day. Absolutely. And, you know, she understood that something was wrong, but, um, you know, I didn't tell her right away what it all meant. Um, and uh, it took a long time before we were ready to, to really tell our kids. How old was your son at the time? Um, he was 11. Yeah. So how did you break it to your kids? Well, uh, for my son, um, he is a intuitive boy. He's got that emotional intelligence and um, he's very smart. So um, I sat down with him and told him what was going on. And he took it all in and he was sad, but didn't um, necessarily show me that right away. And then he went and watched a video. Um, they have a program uh, through their school where they can watch all kinds of videos, science and social studies and um, uh, biographies of um, famous people. Anyway, he went and watched one on cancer, and specifically on breast cancer, and came back to me and said, I was really scared, but I watched this video and it explained what this was. And there's treatment, mom, and I, I know it's going to be okay, you know. So I thought that was very um, sweet of him to not – I really believe he didn't want to burden me with questions because um, that's his way. But um, he went and found his own answers. I wish I, wish I could have been those answers for him. Um, but, but this was a safe place for him to go and, and read it and uh, watch a video about what it meant to have uh, cancer. So he's a smart kid. My daughter, um, I don't think really understood it, you know, at five, um, she just knew that I was sick and she would, she loved to use the word chemo. So she would say, my mom's on chemo <laughs> everywhere we would go when I didn't have any hair and was wearing my hat or she'd tell her, her teacher, my mom's on chemo. So, um, for some reason that just stuck. And, uh, so we still kind of joke about that, but they're great kids. How do they deal with you losing your hair and how did that dynamic occur? Yeah, that was, um, obviously very much different for my daughter than my son. Um, my daughter is a very, um, uh, playful girl who uh, loves hair and makeup and um, dressing up and dresses and all those things. And she loved to brush my hair. It was one of her favorite things to do. Mommy, I'm going to do your hair. So she'd get out all the clips and the bows and the everything and, and brush my hair. And, the, and I had very long, um, straight hair. And then, um, and, and so that was kind of a bonding moment when I would tell her, you know, this is not going to be here. So, you know, do my hair now and then we'll see what happens. And so I tried to include her in buying hats or um, scarves or those kinds of things. So she could tell me, you know, oh, I like this one or I like that one. You look pretty in this one, mommy. So um, so that was that was uh, a bonding thing that we could do together in a time when um, it wasn't I wasn't feeling great. Yeah, I think that's important because you still want to spend time with them, but some of the things that you're used to doing, it may be hard to do during chemo. Absolutely. So, you know, I pick them up from school every day. Um, I, and 
retired physician now, so um, uh, I pick them up from school every day. And there were days on chemo when uh, that prospect was really all I could think about doing in a day. You know, I would spend the whole day sort of getting myself dressed enough to do it, um, clean enough, you know, showered enough to do it, uh, just um, not nauseated, whatever I needed to do, medicines I needed to take to get there to get them. It was important that I could be there to pick them up from school every day. And then um, toward the end of my chemo treatment, I was pretty anemic. Um, and so it was getting harder and harder to do that. But um, uh, I, I'm happily made it there almost every day. I have a lot of support um, from my mom and my mother-in-law. And so there would be, uh, you know, days here and there where I would say, I don't think I could do it today. But uh, for the most part, I was proud of myself for, for getting there for them every day that I could. Yeah. And you retired from medicine before you were diagnosed. Correct. About six months before I decided to stay home with my kids. And um, we had uh, the summer of our lives together. Um, they never knew anything in the summers uh, like we might have had when we were kids in the summers. They went to daycare by 7 a.m. and were the last kids to get picked up by 6 p.m. And um, they're, they have a wonderful daycare provider um, who took them on trips and did fun things with them. But it's not the same as that sort of summer vacation that you always want to have or have for your kids. So we did. We had our summer of fun and we made a whole list of things we were going to do and we checked them off and we did them. Um, and it was, um, wonderful. And then I write on the side. And so part of, um, retirement for me was um, to, um, get more time to, um, pursue this passion I have for, um, for writing. And, um, so I got to do some of that as well. And I published my first book in the spring, um, of the same year that I was diagnosed uh, in the fall. And let's talk about the writing a little bit. So how did you get into it? Um, you know, I never really thought of myself as a writer. You know, I know many writers and, um, and most of them say, you know, they've been writing since they were just a kid. They just had journals and journals or wrote stories. And that was their thing. Um, that really wasn't my thing. Medicine was my thing. I, I always knew I was going to be a doctor or I, you know, whenever somebody would ask me as a kid, what are you going to be? I was always going to be a pediatrician. Um, it, it just, there was no question in my mind. So um, medicine doesn't leave a lot of time for creative arts on the side. Uh, and <laughs> um, the study of medicine, especially uh, where you work in 80 hours as a resident, um, and there's no time. So um, I never really thought that was what I was going to do. Slowly, this story kind of kept creeping into my head. Uh, I was reading uh, whenever I could. I loved to read. Um, and this story just kind of wouldn't let me go. And I thought, I better put this down. Just I'll just put it down and I'll put it aside. And then um, I kind of couldn't put it aside. So I started writing and uh, learning um, what it was to write a story. And I finished it, had it edited, and published it. It was the first of three. So it can't have been that easy as you made it seem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's definitely pull your hair out hard. I, no, one, no one who writes anything will tell you that writing is easy, but I think I'm better with written word than I certainly am in spoken word. Um, and 
I just found it to be an outlet for uh, my own stories weaved in and out through there. Um, and after diagnosis, it got much harder. Uh, the brain fog of chemotherapy is a real thing. Uh, the joint pain of Samara is a real thing. Um, those things kept me from really uh, pursuing writing as fast as I wanted to, as fast as the story would come to me. The author's note at the end of my third book is um, all about the beginning of the series of books where I was cancer-free and uh, writing on the side and then through the second book, which was written during treatment, and then finally to that third book, which was written after treatment and is the fastest book I've ever written because it just fell off my fingers. Um, I, I had all this time to think about it and to compose it in my head while I was, you know, um, laying on the radiation table or um, sitting in the chemotherapy chair um, or just trying to fall asleep at night when, you know, you, you can't turn your brain off. So that third book really did fall off my fingers. It was a, um, a joy to write that one. And so for those who are not familiar with your books, can what is the synopsis of the three? Oh, sure. So it's a, a romantic suspense series. I generally write contemporary romance with a twist of suspense. So they're not um, heavy thrillers or anything, but they're, um, there's always some component of suspense. And they are set in Chicago, uh, contemporary time. And they're about three brothers uh, who each find the um, partner that um, uh, is to be. Their um, stories are um, sometimes medical, sometimes um, uh, about the, their kids in their lives. You know, the things that I draw from my own experiences um, are pulled into these three stories of these three brothers and um, the women that they ultimately uh, connect with. And so you wrote the manuscript. How do you get it published? Right. So um, that's a huge, steep learning curve. I will tell you that. I, um, I entered a bunch of contests along the way as a means mostly to get some free editing, um, to get some uh, story structure editing, um, more of a developmental edit, they call it. Um, they they re usually read only you know the first three chapters. So if you haven't started your story off by then, um, they're gonna you know nobody's gonna finish. So the contests were a great way to um, to get that um, expert opinion. And then once I had some of those under my belt, I finished the story uh, for one, had it professionally edited, and then I um, worked through self publishing. So you can um, go down two routes when you're going to publish a book. You can um, seek an agent and a traditional publisher. And, um, you know, all of your favorite authors probably are along that route. And then there's um, a self-publishing route, which is, um, uh, you know, the uh, independent publishers of the world. So you can upload your book to Amazon, uh, get a cover designer to make a great cover for you, make sure it's professionally edited, uh, put your book out there and, um, and get feedback. 
Um, you don't want to do that with a, a poorly edited or a poorly written book uh, because nobody's going to come back to want to read the next one. Um, and so, you, you know, you have to do all the parts and pieces yourself. So you have to be the cover designer sometimes or, or hire a really good one. Um, you have to be your own editor up until the point where you get that final professional edit. You have to be your marketer, your uh, advertising executive, your, you know, your everything, um, and your own accountant, all those things. Um, I found some of that fun, not all of it, but, but most of it was fun. And uh, it, it's just a freedom in publishing that, um, that you don't have if you're pursuing a traditional published uh, manuscript um, and um, I have a lot of friends who, who do have traditional um, contracts and they appreciate that their publisher does all of that stuff for them for the most part. Um, and I have tons of friends who are um, independent publishers, self-publishers uh, that uh, love the freedom of the other option. So. And your book is available as an ebook or in hard copy as well? Both. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, available in, in, in any ebook platform. So, um, you know, whatever is your favorite and downloads to your favorite e-reader and then, um, available in paperback on Amazon. And how was the whole marketing experience? Yeah, you, you have to build that platform, you know, and, um, I am part of several Facebook groups that, um, kind of help you to market your books and, um, find those different, um, marketing, um, businesses that will help you to do some of that stuff. But it's really, you know, boots on the ground. You have to talk about your stories a lot. You have to um, learn how to advertise yourself, which I'm really bad at. And, um, you know, you got to put yourself out there. It's a little bit intimidating to get started, but it's kind of fun too. Once people get to know you and they've read your books, certainly that kind of feedback is um, empowering when you think there's people out there who've read my story and they want another one. And so uh, publishing the second one was a labor of love because I was in treatment. And um, I I really uh, learned so much from the first to the second. I think they're all good stories, um, but um, I think the third one's my favorite. I'm going to read them all. <laughs> I will be going to Amazon to buy them as soon as we're done. Um, and I'll put the link up for the book so other people awesome. can, uh, can download them. Sure. So what are you working on now? I'm working on a new series. Um, I have um, a plan for three book series that is set in um, on an island in the northern part of Lake Michigan okay. um, called Bear Island. And um, it'll probably be the Bear Island series. I'm just getting into it. So the first book, you're always building characters, building stories, and drawing from your own experiences as you build those stories. So um, so that one always takes longer. And so I'm, I'm mid, mid-book. That's great. During chemo, one of the big side effects of Taxol is neuropathy, right? The numbness tingling in your fingers, your toes. Did you develop that and did that affect your writing? I developed it toward the end of my uh, Taxol treatment, probably felt it the most in that 10 to 12 uh, rounds, but it has gone away. I I believe I probably have a little bit of neuropathy remaining. I notice it from time to time, especially when it's cold. Um, What keeps me from really um, hitting the keys is the joint pain in my fingers from Samara. Has that gotten better with time? 
no. <laughs> I want to say yes, but no. I actually think it's gotten worse with time. I've tried all kinds of things. Um, uh, I tried to switch to Arimidex, but that was not a good medicine for me. Um, I um, exercise uh, regularly, just trying to keep my joints loose. Uh, I end up taking ibuprofen a few times a week uh, for those days when I've just done too much with my hands. My other side gig, if you will, is that I enjoy cookie decorating. So I, um, I bake and decorate cookies for family and friends. Um, so I use my hands a lot for that. And so that really can get my hands going as well if I'm not careful. So um, ibuprofen is helpful when that happens. I try not to take it too often. So you're on letrozole, which is a medication for postmenopausal women. Uh, can you talk about, did you get your ovaries taken out? or? Yeah, so I did six weeks of radiation after I had my mastectomies. And then I did um, robotic total hysterectomy. Uh, that procedure was um, much simpler than I expected. For some reason, I was more anxious to, when I was having that done. But the robotic surgery was very smooth and the recovery time pretty minimal. I felt like I was back on my feet very quickly after that surgery. And then I had a pulmonary embolism. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I went to have my last set of scans after everything was done and um, they found pulmonary embolism. So I was asymptomatic, but I did end up taking six months worth of uh, anticoagulant. And then I started Femera or Letrozole. And I expect to be on that at least five years. The data is all over the place, five, ten. No one completely knows what the right thing to do is at this point. And do you miss medicine kind of during this? Or what was your experience going through cancer treatment as a doctor? It was interesting. I, I don't miss everyday medicine because I really was at the end of my career getting the current term is burnout, but I don't know that that's the right term for it. Um, I was tired of clicking my electronic medical record a thousand times a day. I was tired of calling and begging for my insurance companies to cover things for my patients that they needed. You know, those were the things that were getting in the way of really practicing the medicine that I enjoyed. And, um, and then all of it was taking me away from my children, you know, as our family needed me to be here, you know, that I made that decision. I think going through it as a physician, um, I knew my providers very, very well. They were friends, they were colleagues, um, and I trusted them wholeheartedly with my treatment. My oncologist said, you should go to, you know, our biggest center is University of Michigan. You should go to the University of Michigan and get a consult. And I asked, why should I do that? I said, I don't need those things. I, I know what you know, uh, and I trust you. So um, I'm ready to get started, and let's get this done. And um, and she was wonderful about just, okay, then that's, that's what we'll do. But she had no... Um, guile about, you know, there was no problem with going for tertiary or secondary uh, consultations if that's what I had wanted. I think I knew what was coming, but I don't think I could ever anticipate the side effects, the everyday slog that our patients go through when they go through treatment like this. And so you don't know it until you do it. I, I think I have more empathy for all of my patients now. Not that I didn't have empathy then, but I just 
I mean, I had sympathy, but I didn't have empathy. Couldn't get, couldn't wrap my brain around what they were actually going through. And, um, and so it was a different experience. I, I, the technicalities of it all, you know, I could ask for what I wanted. I knew to ask for a pectoralis block um, for my bilateral mastectomy, you know, that that would make recovery easier. And I knew the things to, to ask for that maybe other patients don't know to ask for. And um, a lot of that came from being part of a physician mom um, cancer survivor group. Um, and um, those women gave me every tidbit, every um, tip that they had already gone through and to make my treatment course as easy as possible. Those women were spectacular when I needed them to be, and, um, and they still are. Um, I think the Facebook groups for physicians, for physician moms, for writers, for who for yeah. cancer survivors, I mean, the Facebook groups have, I think, revolutionized care, medical care for, or just care in life in general, right? For anything you yeah, I mean, to Facebook I, now. I think I feel privileged that I have this uh, social media group that is so knowledgeable to help me. I don't want anybody to go to WebMD or, um, you know, Facebook to get their medical advice per se, you know, their treatment plan or any of those things. Um, so I, I do feel like I was um, exceptionally lucky to have um, the knowledge base that I had going into treatment, but also this support system that would give me medical tips that they had that would make the treatment plan easier. And I think that's really important, right? So as an oncologist, I'll sit and tell people you have fatigue, you have nausea, you have you know, like a laundry list of symptoms, but mm-hmm. what a patient really needs is, well, how do I get through the nausea, right? So it's this particular right. brand of ginger candy. Where do I get that? Yeah. Like those kind of things. And I think the Facebook groups and social media is really helpful in that regard. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is there anything that you expected, you know, you knew you'd be tired or you knew you would have neuropathy, but then how it actually happened was very different? Um, I think I underestimated the fatigue of radiation. Um, I tend to be a person who just keeps going. I mean, you have to be in medicine. If you're going to be a med student, you're going to be a resident. Um, you're going to uh, be an attending physician. I mean, I feel like that's part of my personality is just keep going. And there were times when I had to tell myself, I just can't just keep going. I really have to rest. My family was telling me I have to rest. And, um, and I think the fatigue of radiation was unexpected. I mean, it's not that my radiation oncologist didn't tell me it was going to be there. It was just more than I expected. The, the day-to-day fogginess was more than I expected. I didn't think it would change me as much as it did. I'm a different person on the other side than I was before. I didn't expect it to be as pronounced. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think I expected in my scientific brain to have chemotherapy and then have surgery and then have radiation. And I could step by step say, yep, that's the protocol. And the protocol doesn't take into account your feelings on the way your body has changed. It doesn't take into account your um, frustration with your brain that doesn't seem to want to work when it's supposed to. It doesn't take into account those intangibles that change you over the course of a year of treatment. 
Um, and, and, and really, like I said, you come out a different person on the other side. I'm, I've never been the, um, sort of poly positive person. I, I've always been more sarcastic, more, you know, I lean on my husband to uh, make me laugh when things are tough. Uh, I've never been the person to, you know, shout from the rooftops that if I just shout it loud enough, it'll make it happen. That's just not me. And I think I'm a more positive person on the other side of cancer. Um, I don't know how much time I have. I don't know what that time will be like. And so I do feel like I live life differently um, and more positively after uh, for myself, for my kids, for my husband, for my whole family. There's always some good things that come out of it. And um, that's great to hear that. Did it affect your relationships in any way with your husband, with your kids, your family, friends? Um, sure. My relationship with my husband is strong. We've been married for 17 years now. I certainly respect the stress that is put on a relationship uh, in this setting. Um, we are closer because of my cancer. Um, we are, I think, stronger because of what we've been through together. Um, but my husband is an introvert, and he's going to process all of this inside and not necessarily want to talk about every aspect of it. So I did have to s not expect that from him, per se, and find other places where I could, you know, talk at nauseum if I needed to about how I was feeling and not get any kind of, you know, um, pushback that they just can't listen to it any longer. So I have a village of friends who uh, all have um, uh, kids that are in the same uh, grade as my daughter um, who stepped up immediately and, and have all been helpful. Um, my mom, you know, this was hard for her because it came through her. So um, you know, it was hard for her to know how to feel about all of it um, and um, obviously put some stress on her as well um, for her own screening and, and um, treatment. I have a spectacular mother-in-law, and she and I have become very close since um, my diagnosis. She took me to every chemotherapy treatment. Uh, she took me to every radiation treatment five days a week for six weeks, not because she had to. I could have driven myself to radiation treatment easily uh, because she wanted to. She said, you will never go through any part of this alone. So you, I'm going to take you, you know, and, and, you know, some people might be like, oh, my God, my mother-in-law wants to take me to radiation treatment. It's just not like that for her. Um, she is... Um, uh, radiation oncology nurse in tra by training, um, and but that's not what makes her um, spectacular at that kind of empathy. She just uh, stepped up and said, "This is what we're going to do because this is what you need," and um, and I'll never forget her for um, taking care of me during that time. It's so important, and I think the phrase "You're not going to do this alone." I think that yeah. just speaks volumes. It's it's monumental. Absolutely. You know, we had talked a little bit about when we were talking before, um, any pet peeves or things that you didn't like during this experience? Um, I, I think I told you that I think the, the one that drives me crazy just on the inside is um, it's no one's fault, but the question of, um, so you're in remission. 
I, I think nobody who's ever had this kind of thing happen to them, whether it's cancer um, or a chronic illness of some kind, um, you can't say, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the easy answer is, yeah, I'm in remission. Because who knows? What what do I know? Do I know that every cell of cancer was killed by chemotherapy and radiation in my body? No, I, I can't say that. I mean, there's probably one in there somewhere trying to find its comfy little home. And can I can I say that, you know, that 10 years from now I can say I'm in cancer remission? I don't know. I had no women who have been more than 10 years out and no evidence of disease and then have a recurrence. So that one's always hard. I think what people want to hear and what the truth is are two different things when it comes to, so are you in remission? I just tend to answer with yes, because that makes people feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, my real friends, you know, my, um, I shouldn't say my real friends, my confidants know that um, you, you never know. You just don't know until something changes. So my sarcasm comes into play when someone asks me, are you in remission? I don't know. You tell me, I'll tell you, I'll tell you in 20 years, I guess. I, I don't know what the, like the time is. Yeah. The I'm word remission, here. it's, I think they used to use it more and it's tough. Yeah. And now we kind of, you say, we say you have no evidence of disease. And I think that's all we can say. Cause unfortunately this can come back and we hope it never does. Yeah. The other one we talked about was um, the whole warrior mentality. I think, I think, you know, people want to tell you you're brave or you're a warrior. What else are you going to do? You don't get any choice in that. You don't just get to say, okay, I'm going to be brave now. You just have to go do it. And um, yeah, they always want to tell you, you just have to fight. And I, I find that a little bit hard to hear because I have friends who didn't make it Mm -hmm. and did they not fight hard enough? I think they fought pretty darn hard. You know, so that warrior mentality makes me feel like, um, yeah, we joke about it at our house. Like, who am I fighting? Am I fighting, you know, am I fighting biology? Am I fighting pathology? Well, who am I fighting today? And um, and so we've turned it into a, you know, a sarcastic kind of meme at our house. But um, I know that, you know, people need different things. Some people need to be told they're a warrior to be a warrior, right? Mm-hmm. So fine, if that's what you need to hear to, you know, get up every day and do your thing. Yeah. But for me, it just it felt a little bit patronizing, you know. I think everyone say. needs different things, and, and everyone needs different things to get through the same treatment. So yeah, absolutely. Your yeah. experience with AC is going to, you know, you give it to 100 people, everyone has a different experience. And absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, – the, um, the folks who, who know you best will give you what you need, you know, during treatment, Mm -hmm. the, your oncologist, your parents, your husband, who, your spouse, whoever is, you know, closest to you, they will support you in the way that they know you need. And I, I found that to be true. Um, and then the rest of the world can support whoever they want in whatever way they want. Um, no one's, you know, forcing me to put on a pink ribbon and be a warrior. Um, <laughs> and say those things. Yeah. I mean, that's just that, not what we do, but that's okay. What is Everybody's your thought on the whole pink, pink ribbon thing? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's a, 
Um, it's a symbol. I don't need a symbol to tell me that I have breast cancer or to remind me every day that I have breast cancer. Um, but, um, if it means that somebody is going to give to a charity or a foundation or a research group who's going to do great things with that money because there's a pink ribbon attached to it, then, um, by all means, you know, use a pink ribbon. It's fine by me. And last question. <laughs> if you could sum this all up in one word, what would you say? Oh, you know my word. I my love word, your words. I want you to share my, with everyone. If I ever write a memoir, I'm saying right now, this is my word. This is the title, so nobody can steal it. Um, my word is hirath, which I'm probably saying wrong. It's a Gaelic word. H-I-R-A-E-T-H, hirath. And it means a homesickness for a home to which you cannot return. So it it's a nostalgia, a yearning to go back to a place from your past that you can't return to. I love that so much. I think it's just spot on. Where did you ever learn of this word? I came across it as I was writing and as I was um, in treatment. And um, it wasn't in the context of breast cancer or cancer in general. It was completely separate in a different context, but it it rung true to me in my experience with breast cancer. Well, now you have to write a memoir and that has to be the title. <laughs> I, I promise my memoir will be much more eloquent than this I can was be very in eloquent. spoken word. <laughs> oh, you were very eloquent. I can't wait to read it. But thank you so much for joining me and this was wonderful. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I have just one favor to ask. If you are loving the show and learning as much as I am from these incredible women, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes as that is the best way to grow the show. I am really excited to continue to share more cancer stories with you over the coming weeks and months. You can head on over to my Instagram and Twitter pages at Dr. Toplinski for more podcast news and updates as well as interludecancerstories.com for today's show notes. Thank you again for all of your support thus far, and I'll be back next week with another amazing guest.